Today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And uh, we, if you are a guest with us, we just work our way through the scriptures and you happen to have joined us when we're in 2 Corinthians. Paul's letter to... Sec Actually, it's probably his third, maybe his fourth letter to the Corinthians, but we only have two. And so this is the second in our Bible. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. Be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word the bread of life. And as we partake of it this morning, as we have fellowship with you through your word this morning, give us ears to hear, Lord. We recognize that without your help, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, we miss so much. So help us, Lord, to hear this incredible passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So in this letter... Paul has been defending his, his apostolic authority by contrasting his message and his way of life with that of the false teachers. And some people, some commentators say, well, at this point in the letter, it takes an abrupt change and he starts teaching in a different style. It's no longer about the false teachers. Other commentators that I side with said, no, this is just a continuation. Because if Paul's still addressing the false teachers... Um, he's already called them in chapter uh, 2 peddlers of the word of God. In chapter 3, he uh, contrasts the letter, uh, the word of life with the letter that kills. And in chapter 4, he said they use cunning underhanded means and tamper with the word of God. And in chapter 5, he said they boast in outward appearances and not what is in the heart. Therefore, I think we can assume that in this chapter, chapter 6, um, that he's referring to false teachers when he says unbelievers. Because if you think your salvation is based on works, you are not a believer in what we just did, just uh, celebrating what Christ has done for us, that we, what we could not do for ourselves. This, the passage preceding this one is, a, is really another condemnation of the false teachers. By contrast, Paul and his team suffered for the sake of the gospel. But where was the denial, the self-denial of the false teachers? 
Paul gave much more than he received from the Corinthians, but the false teachers were there to receive. Paul taught the liberating spirit of grace, while the false teachers taught the bondage of the law. The core of the gospel is the love and the grace that Jesus expressed on the cross. If the false teachers haven't accepted that, then they're still living by the works of the flesh and are therefore unbelievers. Thus, Paul may very well be continuing to address those false teachers and asking the Corinthians to sever their yoke with them. Stop joining with them. Stop believing in their teaching. The language he used means it's a... Uh, means it as a universal principle applying to all who are not believers, not just the, these false teachers, but also uh, to any who are unbelievers. Do not be yoked with them. To be yoked is to carry the collar that directs your efforts. This word for um, unequally yoked is used only here in the New Testament. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used in Leviticus 19.19, forbidding um, different animals to be yoked together, a cow and a donkey. It's forbidden to put them together under a double yoke. And so Paul uh, takes this, uh, the Jews call it a midrash, a teaching on what's really behind this. Is it just about animals or is there more to it? And so Paul's going to give a teaching in this passage that explains that it's more than that. Jews often said that they were yoked to the law. In other words, the law directed them. Jesus asked us to take his yoke upon himself because he's meek and lowly and humble in heart and to learn of him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light in contrast with the law that's so demanding, so detailed, so impossible to fully live. The false teachers wanted the church to be under the yoke of the law. Paul wanted them to be yoked to Jesus Christ. To be yoked together means to have that double collar so that another is connected with you and that you're working together. This is often interpreted as marriage, but as we see by Jesus' invitation, it has a much deeper implication. Marriage is certainly one application, but there are many others. Yoked here is described with five other words in the passage. Partnership, fellowship, which we talked about a little earlier, koinonia, accord, portion, and agreement. So to be yoked has all those five meanings that Paul's given it in this passage. That's Paul's expanded meaning as an in, uh, of the introductory statement, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Each description is followed with the reason for not yoking oneself to an unbeliever. It's a theme throughout the Old Testament laws, this idea of separation. Uh, it, which foreshadows our separation from the world to Christ. Jews had numerous things that they were not to mix. Um, they were forbidden to marry outside their culture. They weren't to mix certain foods together, nor were they to mix certain uh, uh, clothing material together. 
The theme goes all the way back to creation when God separated the light from the darkness. When God separated the land from the water. So separation has always been this major biblical theme. The first reason for not yoking oneself with unbelievers is in 14b, what participation has righteousness with lawlessness? So if we apply this to the false teachers, one might say, wait a minute, they're teaching the law. The law is light. Scripture declares the law to bring us light. And yet the term law, Torah, in, in scripture can mean not just the laws of Moses, but the entire Old Testament. And when you take the entire message of the Old Testament as revealed to the Apostle Paul, it pointed to the fact that we're hopeful, hopelessly sinful and therefore we needed a new covenant because the, we couldn't live the old covenant. Someone had to come and live it for us. A new covenant initiated by the Messiah who would bear our sins. The Old Testament declares repeatedly that our righteousness is of God, not our own. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah said, all, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. So once the Messiah came and took our sins and offered us his righteousness, then to teach that we're only accepted by God according to the law is counter-biblical. It's contrary to the law, the scriptures. We could say, what partnership has faith in Christ to do with religious rule-keeping? None whatsoever. When we look at it in that light, we see how it denounced the false teachers, and yet it also gave us a guideline for relationships in our day uh, with others or with all kinds of religion. Every religion other than Christianity, well, with the exception of the religion of materialism, is based on rule keeping. Even some faiths that call themselves Christian are based on rule keeping. True faith in Christ is complete trust in what Jesus did for us, which changes our heart and our behavior. The indwelling Holy Spirit guides us. Of course, we don't intentionally violate the moral laws of the Old Testament. The Spirit of God wouldn't lead us to do that because they're based on the nature and character of God. But the cultural laws that God gave for the Jewish nation no longer apply to us. Jesus fulfilled them all for us. We still check what we believe the Spirit of God is leading us to do with the principles of Scripture. And the nature of God is just revealed in his word, as well as the typical behavior of those who are in Christ taught in the New Testament. But we don't see a conformity to those instructions as a means of becoming righteous. That was done for us on the cross. Thank God. Amen. As Paul wrote at the end of the preceding chapter, uh, 521, for our sake he made him sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The only way God can see man as righteous is if we are in Jesus. Therefore, to reject Christ puts us in that lawless group, trying to make ourselves righteous, 
which is a prideful rejection of God's provision. The second contrast in the end of 14, or what fellowship has light with darkness? God separated the two at the beginning of creation. Remember that the Hebrews see all created things as a picture of spiritual realities. Light represents righteousness. Darkness represents evil. Light, conformity to God and purity, while darkness, evil. Light dispels darkness, and therefore darkness can only exist in the absence of light. And this is profoundly meaningful. It implies that those who reject Jesus and what he has done for them do so intentionally. John said, Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world, John 1, 9. Everyone ever born has the light of Christ shine upon them, which is the truth of the Spirit that shows us that we need God's mercy. We let the light do its work or we avoid the light and remain in darkness. It's a daily experience. It's a lifelong experience. Vine's Dictionary of Greek words defines fellowship, koinonia, denoting the share which one has in anything, a participation, fellowship recognized and enjoyed. Thus it's used of the common experience and interests of Christians. Of participation in the knowledge of the Son of God. Of sharing the realization of the effects of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ as set forth by the emblems in the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated of participation in what is derived from the Holy Spirit, of participation in the sufferings of Christ, of sharing in the resurrection life possessed in Christ, and so fellowship with the Father and the Son. And all of those, of course, uh, Vines backs up with the scripture that those uh, interpretations came from. Paul's third contrast is in 15a. What accord has Christ with Belial? And these, again, these are all reasons we are not to be yoked with unbelievers. Belial, according to Vine's Dictionary in the New Testament, only found in this verse, is set in contrast to Christ and represents a personification of the system of impure worship connected especially with the cult of Aphrodite. In other words, Christians do not worship with sexual acts or pagan rituals. Those are antithetical to Christ. The union of man and woman in scripture is sacred and represents Christ in the church. Pagan orgies then in, in Hebrew representation would re represent polytheism, which would be abhorrent to believers. The word accord is the Greek word from which we get our English word harmony. What harmony has Christ with Belial? In other words, there's no harmony between Christ and pagan worship. We don't try to blend religions. They're not in agreement about the fundamentals. Many people try to practice Christianity with means that they learned in their previous faith. Many people have a cafeteria-style belief, you know, a little Buddhism, a little animism, some shamanism, and throwing their prayers to a few of the saints. Oh, and don't forget to add the magic word in Jesus' name. 
it's syncretism. In other words, it's trying to combine religions to fit your idea, and it dilutes the faith. The fundamentals are so different that there can't be harmony. Our faith is based upon the Bible being the revealed word of God. If you have serious doubts about that, uh, I'd be glad to uh, share with you afterward because there's some very convincing truths that show us that this is the word of God that's come down to us, the pure, unadulterated word of God. 15b, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? A portion in the scripture, uh, we just actually sing about it uh, in one of the songs, uh, the, the Lord is, is my shield and portion, right? And in scripture, that means the part of the uh, king's table. The king would give a portion to those who were uh, family or in his court. And so the king would give a portion to them, everyone would get to eat a portion from the king's table. But the scriptures declare in Psalm 119.57 and in Lamentations 3.24 that the Lord is our portion. God has given himself to his children. It's reminiscent of Jesus telling the multitude to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Our king didn't just share something from his table. He gave himself to us. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He, unto us, a son is given. But the unbeliever will not receive him. A shared meal was a time of fellowship, and light has no fellowship with darkness. That's why the warning before we have the communion table. The final contrast is the first sentence in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The Greek word for agreement means to be well-minded towards something. How can the temple of God be well-minded towards idolatry? The Jews had to cleanse the temple and sanctify it after it was polluted by Antiochus Epiphanes, defiled with an idol. That cleansing is celebrated in Hanukkah. Idolatry is the reason the Jewish nation went into captivity. It's a violation of the command that you shall not make to yourself a carved image from the Ten Commandments. All of these contrasting expressions are illustrations of why we're not to be yoked together with these false teachers or unbelievers. It's true of marriage, for how can two walk together unless they are agreed? That was the downfall of Solomon. But I believe it also applies to, to business partnerships as well. If the hearts involved don't agree on the goal, how can a partnership prosper? The heart of a child of God is to glorify the Lord. The heart of an unbeliever is to serve self. There will be an inevitable clash and separation. If a believer binds himself or herself to an unbeliever, it will end in separation or compromise. And the reason that is so is given in the next sentence, 16b, for we are the temple of the living God. 
In the Old Testament, God directed Moses to build a tent in which people could bring offerings to God and priests could minister to the Lord. David made plans for a permanent structure. Though God told him no house could contain him, David's son Solomon built a temple and there was a manifestation of God within the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah, this ball of light over the Ark of the Covenant, the holiest place. And a curtain separated it from daily activities. And once a year, the high priest entered to make atonement for the people. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that we have access to God. Jesus had said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He predicted that the day was coming when we would be in him and he in us. That's because God's plan was to dwell in the hearts of those who love him and accept what he's done for them. The wonder that God could dwell in us is now present. But we still have the freedom to yield or to resist. His presence in us is what makes us priceless, just like it made the temple of old priceless. The building was beautiful, but without the presence, it was just a beautiful building. And so it is with us. Revelation 21.2 tells us that together we make up a city adorned as a bride in which God is going to dwell forever. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us now is just a foretaste of that bliss that is to come. Paul's declaring that those who are in Christ are righteous, light, in Christ, believers, the temple of God. How glorious. And thus they should not be joined to unrighteousness, those who are in darkness. 16c, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's citing Leviticus 26 verse 12 to make his point. That's because he has faith in the scriptures. May God help us make our points uh, in our conversations by referring to Scripture. Amen. It shows where our faith is placed. Leviticus 26 is about the blessings for obedience. Jesus' obedience is credited to us when we accept his forgiveness. Since Paul could see that no one can be fully obedient, he interpreted the verse as being fulfilled in all who are in Christ. The end of the passage declares that the yoke of Egypt would be broken off their necks. Egypt represents the fallen world. The whole passage about being unequally yoked is based on Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. If God has taken the yoke of worldliness from our necks, the slavery to sin that we could not free ourselves of, then why would we want to take that yoke joined to someone still under the yoke? Whether it's marriage or partnership of any kind, it's like a prisoner being freed asking to go back to jail. We do this when we willingly give in to the flesh nature and compromise our convictions. A few examples, ungodly entertainment 
such as pornography or any entertainment that stirs the flesh nature. Business that may seem profitable but harms people or has an ungodly effect on them. Partnership with people you know are ungodly or worship of God combined with pagan practices. Why go back under the yoke of bondage when Christ has set you free? Paul tells us that trying to please God by obeying the Old Testament laws is also bondage. He wrote, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What a blessing it is for God to call us his people. We could not ask for a better God. Some people do not like his righteousness and his justice, but would you really want it any other way? We complain about injustice in the world or in, in others, but then we, we balk at God's perfect justice. Our God is perfect in all his attributes. As was said by Dan in, in the introduction, has, he has our best interest in hearts and has all power to see us perfected when we stand in his presence. There's none like him. Next, Paul quoted Isaiah 52, 11, another messianic passage that begins by commanding the people to take off the bonds on their necks. It says, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Separated for God's purposes is the definition of holiness. In Isaiah, God was asking the people of Israel, and because it's a messianic passage, therefore all who are in Christ, to separate, separate ourselves from all that would defile us and drag us back into the flesh. We are surrounded by pagan and worldly influences. Some of it's very blatant and obvious, and others very subtle and would bring unnoticed compromise. But the question we must ask ourselves is do we really want to be God's and God's alone for his glory? It sounds threatening as if we're going to lose our autonomy, but God doesn't do that. For better or for worse, we find our free will is always with us. And once we begin to surrender fully to God, we find new pleasures, the pleasure of doing God's will and cooperating with his Holy Spirit, what he's doing in the world. We experience a deeper love than we ever knew before, but to experience that, we must be separated unto God. The light from the darkness, godliness from the evil around us, submitted rather than compromising. It's not that we leave the world and never associate with the lost. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was slandered because he ate with tax collectors and enjoyed the wine and the food. The difference is that his heart stayed separated unto his father. He was there to rescue them. Jesus' high priestly prayer demonstrates the difference. He prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We're in the world, 
but not of the world. We avoid touching the unclean things and find that God welcomes us into fellowship with himself. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What more could we ask than to be welcomed into the family of God? But remember, we'll, we are welcomed into that family when we choose him over the world and are willing to come out and separate ourselves. Our old nature wants to fit in and, and be accepted by all, which is a great temptation. But as we experience the wonder of God, God is our Father. It's easier, for we realize how much better it is to have the praise of God than the acceptance of men. These verses are yet one more way to express the gospel, the good news that there's more than what this world offers, much more. There's forgiveness, there's reconciliation with God, our creator, and none of it's possible without the righteousness that is ours in Christ, accepting that gift he offers us. The false teachers had missed the point that we're saved by God's merciful grace. Be in Christ by accepting his forgiveness. Come out of the yoke of the world. Don't touch what is unclean and you will become a son and daughter of almighty God, the king of the universe and the Lord of all. Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll bring the benediction.